in my teacher's footsteps, Chapter Three, read by Nick Scott. Having found out all he could about Ajahn Sumedho's pilgrims on foot to Mankailash in Tibet sixteen years before, Nick flies out to Kathmandu with Ajahn Amaro to make the final arrangements for their pilgrimage. Before the rest of their party arrives, Chapter Three: Honoring One's Lineage. Ajahn Sumedho's pilgrimage to Mount Kailash started in Kathmandu, where they were met at the airport by Gerd Lederman, an old friend of his, and the ex-husband of the eminent German Buddhist nun, Ayakema. And you told me Gerd drove them to Kopen Monastery in his jeep. We were all laughing, as many of us had been to Asia before, and there was that slight craziness about everything there. This thing we were travelling on, they called a road. Why Copan? I asked. Well, that was David's Tibetan Buddhist tradition, the Gelugpa. We were met by the acting abbot, Lama Yeshe, something or other, an amazing guy, really cheerful, and so compassionate about the Chinese, despite everything they've done to the Tibetans. I found that so inspirational, and he took such good care of us. Really made a fuss of Ajahn Sumedho. Did you stay long? No, because of that missed flight at Heathrow and arriving two days late, we had to pack everything in. There was a trip down to Kathmandu to shop, and then to see our tour company and the Sherpa team. That's when we got the next bombshell. The happy mood changed then. Two weeks previously, the Chinese added a rule that no monks could enter Tibet because of the riots in Lhasa. Not even Sherpas with the surname Lama. One of our Sherpas, called Gelpu Lama, could only walk with us to the border. They told us. So that brought us up short. What do we do now? The visas for the monks couldn't be completed. The tour company said no shaven heads or monks' robes. So what did you do? Well, we decided to do the trek anyway, and just see what happened when we got to the border. Andrew Yates told me. That it wasn't how the monks looked that was the real problem. That could be covered up at the border with a hat and coat. It was their passport photos. The tour company told him to bribe the Chinese border guards to let them in. But Andrew had kept that quiet, as he thought Ajahn Sumedho might not approve. True to my aspiration to follow in Ajahn Sumedho's footsteps, 
we also started our pilgrimage in Kathmandu. But although Andrew suggested we should also stay at Kopan Monastery, we decided to honour our own lineage by staying with Nepal's small Theravadan community. The last time I was in Kathmandu, I'd come with Adam Suchito at the end of our epic pilgrimage on foot round the Buddhist holy places of the Ganges Plain. Exhausted, we had summoned one final effort from our dilapidated bodies, wasted by five months of dysentery and an inadequate alms food diet. Somehow, we'd struggled up and over the Himalayan foothills, both of us at times close to collapsing with the effort, to be welcomed into this ancient valley of the Nawari people by those who had in recent years adopted Theravadan Buddhism. They did us proud. They fed us, cared for us, and made an enormous fuss of us, while also celebrating what we had achieved. It was the Nawari people who created the famous Mahayana Buddhist temples, and the giant stupas with two watching eyes that have become the iconic logos for Nepal. Since those times, most Nawaris have turned to Hinduism, but the priestly caste, descended from the original monks and still living traditionally in the old monastic viharas, stayed Buddhist. They became the society's goldsmiths and artisans, and then later the shopkeepers. A wealthy community, but one that felt embattled by both the Hindu majority and the recent flood of Tibetan Buddhists pouring over the Himalayan border, who established monasteries full of real monks and nuns, like Kopan. So some of them turned to Theravada to revitalise their Buddhism. Last century they headed south or east to go forth as monks or nuns, and then in ones and twos to return to found a smattering of modern Theravadan viharas, usually housing a solitary monk trained in Burma or Sri Lanka, maybe with a few associated nuns or a couple of novices. Of these it was Venerable Jnana Pernika who impressed us most on that visit. He practised and taught meditation. The deportment of his five young novices met Ajahn Suchito's exacting standards. And there was a Buddhist nun named Chini, which means sugar, dressed in confectioned pink Burmese nun's robes, who'd been to Amaravati Monastery. We stayed with him in the Vihara he'd recently established on the small road leading to the airport, a modern townhouse by the river, overhung by trees, quiet, clean and conducive to practice. So I'd written to ask, could we stay there again this time? I knew it would be too small for the whole group, but if Ajahn Amro and myself were to arrive a few days early, Ajahn could meet the Nawari Theravada community, then it could become our base, the monks staying there with the rest of us staying elsewhere. We were met at the airport by one of those five novices, now named Venerable Nigroda, a robust and enthusiastic man in his early thirties, dressed in the monastic dark plum maroon of the Burmese Theravadan tradition. As we emerged from the crowds, so much more than I recall from that last visit, 
He greeted us with a torrent of enthusiastic English. It was so good we had come. Adam Amro was such a respected monk. Everyone still remembered the visit of Dr. Nick with Ajahn Sujito. They had received the copies of our pilgrimage books. Their vihara had been in the book, and the other people on our pilgrimage would also be staying. It was all too much to take in, particularly as standing beside him and smiling broadly was a young woman I taught in Ireland named Claire, who was trying quietly to explain her presence. I phoned them when I got to Kathmandu. I just wanted to know how I could visit you, but he insisted I came to stay. The quiet road I recalled from the airport had also changed. It was now a two-lane highway, full to choking with belching lorries, tin buses honking for passengers, flocks of motor scooters and the occasional intimidated small car like ours. It was lined by high modern buildings adorned with enormous advertising holdings, set amidst tottering electricity poles, tufts of rural vegetation and lots of rubbish. In the distance, where I remember gentle paddy fields and toiling peasants, was an ugly urban expanse. I'd forgotten the Buddha's instruction to recall how everything in this world is subject to change. And that is despite having been surprised the previous time I came to Kathmandu by all the development. On this visit, I wasn't surprised. I was horrified. Like all developing countries, Nepal has struggled to deal with the migration of the rural population to the cities. In Nepal's case, this is made particularly tragic, as it is one of the poorest countries in the world, with one of the highest densities of population, but with only one city, Kathmandu, which was once one of the most magical places on the planet. The little Vihara had also mutated. A large sign announced the International Peace Pagoda, and it was now a three-storey affair built of carved red bricks with an internal courtyard set before a white tiled temple at its rear. The small house, its pleasant garden, and even the overhanging trees had all gone. At least it no longer faced the highway, we turned down a dirt road on the river bank to reach the front entrance. But the river was not a river anymore either, more like an open sewer, dark rivulets of water moving between rubbish, the stench of which Venerable Negroda apologised for as we got out. When the rains come, the smell will stop. But that was still three months away. Presumably... It would get worse before then. Waiting at the Vihara's tall metal gates was a large gaggle of shaven-headed young boys, most dressed in the scanty robes of novice monks. Bits of cloth, coloured maroon, yellow, ochre or something in between over their brown skin. We were taken, with them in noisy attendance, to the main temple to meet Venerable Nyanapurnika. At least he was much the same, 
if much older and yet larger, but still courteous, deliberate and caring. He told us he was about to leave for a conference in Thailand, but that we were to make full use of his temple while he was away. Rooms had been prepared for all of our party, the rest of whom would also be collected from the airport. Ajahn Amro greeted him by kneeling to bow three times, the proper sign of respect for a senior monk. Now, as an afterthought, he was asked how many years he'd been a monk, and it was their turn for a surprise. Thirty-five years. Nigroda and two other monks were immediately directed to bow to him, along with all the novices, and there was a sudden rearrangement of our accommodation. Ajahn Amro would have the room reserved for visiting important monks. The following day, we visited Kopen Monastery where Ajahn Sumedho had stayed, as part of an outing Nigroda arranged to the great stupa at Bodna. The stupa was, as I remembered, the vast white dome set above a series of steps, with its head, the square base to the golden spire, looking down at us benignly with those knowing golden eyes. Nigroda had the driver take photos, him with Ajahn Amro on the steps, him with me and Claire, and him showing us the stupa as we walked around it. The encircling houses were more modern than I recalled, but still on a similar scale. Now, though, they were shops selling tourist and religious wear, or cafes. But it was the road we arrived on that had really changed. It was now a city thoroughfare, choked with traffic and lined with tall buildings which obscured any prior sight of the stupa. Once out of the car, I was left standing there stunned. On my very first visit, 40 years previously, I'd stayed at Bodna and cycled regularly into Kathmandu on a country lane without a single vehicle to concern me. At Kopen Monastery, the effect on me was the same. As the others went off to visit the monastic buildings where young Tibetan monks and Western students were passing between classes, I was rooted next to the car, gazing out in amazement from the hill at the sea of houses stretching all the way back to where I knew Bodna Stupa must be. Even twenty years previously it had still been paddy fields, which Ajahn Suchito and I had walked across. Then I remembered, with a twinge of embarrassment, a talk on Buddhism and ecology I gave on that last visit to Kathmandu, and a question afterwards, what could be done about the degradation of the Kathmandu Valley? The uncontrolled development, the pollution of the rivers, the loss of the forests on the slopes. I tried to be optimistic, as I still try to be then, telling them how they could work together to stop it happening. I was now looking at how wrong I'd been.
very good. The depth of Sangilama's tone showed how impressed he was. Ajahn Amro had just mentioned his first encounter with Buddhism when he was 19 and it was with Sangilama's Tibetan Nyingma lineage. When Ajahn added he'd also met a famous Nyingma monk when that monk came to America in 2001, the response was even stronger and deeper in tone. Hmm, very good. He is teacher for my brother. Yes, several of us went from our monastery to pay our respects. We spent the day with him. Hmm, hmm. We were meeting because Ajahn Samedo had also stayed at a second Tibetan monastery, this time unplanned, on their walk from Simicot in Humla to the border. I hoped we could also stay there, so Stephen had put us in touch with Sangi Lama. When I called him in Kathmandu, he'd wanted to come straight round. My brother is very happy to have students of Ajahn Samedo as guests at his monastery. He has much admiration for him. You must come for Sakadawa. This is very auspicious. And next day is a rest day when my brother can see you. This will be very good. Everything, it seemed, was auspicious particularly Ajahn Amro's connection to the Nyingma tradition. After Sangilama left, promising to return in a few days once he'd contacted his brother again, I asked Ajahn Amro about that first encounter with Buddhism. It was in London. There were thirty or forty of us squashed into this tiny flat on Oxford Street, no Gilbert Street, where Dorchen Rinpoche was giving his tantric empowerment. It was all so way over the top. He had this incredible CV, Sariputra, that's the Buddha's principal disciple, in a past life, accomplished Tibetan mathematician, astrologer and healer, great Dharma master. And there was this huge build-up during the weekend. It was hyperbolic, and I was pretty high anyway. In each of the breaks, we'd been round to a friend's flat to smoke another joint, so we could make the most of it all. They explained how incredibly auspicious it was going to be to see this terma, revealed from the Naga realm, and full of tantric teachings. Then we were shuffling forward. Finally my turn came, and Dolce Rinpoche opened the small door, and I was expecting this wonderful, exquisite object, and it was just a handful of mud squished into a wonky human form with two little beady eyes. I thought, is that it? And this monk was... Dokchen Rinpoche wasn't a monk. He was there with his wife and children. He was the head of the Nyingma path. The guy who Stephen explained was made the head when the Tibetans fled Tibet? Yes, he was a great scholar really well respected, but at the time I just thought, well that was so interesting for a weekend, and left it at that. These days, when I say to Western Nyingma followers, 
Frankly, I didn't get any huge electronic buzz or transformative life experience. In fact, I felt disappointed. They say, ah, oh, that's just the surface levels. Actually, that's why you're a monk. Within a couple of years of that empowerment, you were in robes. This was the kind of nonsensical beliefs that Stephen's scepticism had gagged on when he'd been a Tibetan monk. But what can you say? Except it just depends on your perspective. For our other visitor that day, it was meeting Ajahn Amro, which seemed hugely auspicious. Jarana Bhajacharya is a Nepalese film actress who stayed at Amravati Monastery while Ajahn Amro was the abbot. She attended a retreat taught by him. Inspired, she had then stayed for the winter and even considered becoming a nun. So for her to now meet him in her home city was immense. Meanwhile, for Nick Roder, it was the visit by a Bollywood movie star that excited him. Before she arrived, he couldn't stop telling me how famous she was, how she'd won Miss Nepal and been in the Miss World competition, the movies she'd been in, like Love in Nepal, all the adverts she'd made. She was Nepal's most famous star, and she was a Nawari Buddhist we had to persuade her to support their temple. Nigroda was waiting at the front gate for a good half hour before Jarana arrived. He escorted her up to Ajahn Amro's room, a dozen novices trailing in their wake, and once he'd shown her inside and shooed them away, he settled, uninvited and looking expectant, to one side. I could see Ajahn was slightly perturbed by this, but he made no comment. Jarana seemed unfazed, however. She was just delighted to see Ajahn Amro and talk about her meditation practice. That was her real love, first learnt on a ten-day retreat when she was fifteen. Only later did she mention her career, and then, in a dismissive way, said that she didn't know if she wanted to continue with that. The Bombay film industry was such an unpleasant thing. Rather, she'd like to teach meditation. Her fame meant people were now interested. What did Ajahn think? Could she do that? Before she left, Jarana offered to take her somewhere. She could hire a car. Was there anywhere Ajahn would like to go? There was. He would like to visit a Tibetan monastery the base for a teacher he'd known in America. He knew his friend was away teaching in Germany at present, but he'd still like to visit his monastery, which was somewhere in the valley. Nigroda immediately offered to help and took over the arrangements for a trip the next day. Ajahn Amro had met Sokni Rinpoche when he was first sent by Ajahn Sumedho to California. Someone phoned to say a visiting young Tibetan meditation teacher would like to meet him. They'd immediately got on well, attended each other's teachings, and then a few years later taught a long retreat together, exploring the similarities in their approach to practice. Sogni Rinpoche is a master of Dogchen, 
which cuts away the complexity of the usual Tibetan practices to return the emphasis to simple awareness, as the forest tradition has done within Thai Buddhism. Dogshen is a speciality of the Nyingma path. For our trip to the monastery, Nigroda had arranged a four-wheel drive with enough room for Ajahn, sitting beside Jarana at the wheel, and me, Claire and Nigroda in the back. He told us the monastery was on the top of a hill on the other side of town. As we crossed congested Kathmandu, he couldn't resist pointing out to me and Claire a large billboard with Jarana's face smiling down at us. The modern suburbs eventually thinned to a scattering of new houses amidst paddy fields. A lime green one was where Jarana lived with her parents. They'd built a new home here a few years back, she told us, seeking to get away from the smog and noise of the city. We had to climb two different small hills to find our monastery. A tarmac switchback road led up the first one but to the monastery of the wrong Rinpoche, Trollshik Rinpoche, the teacher for Sangi Lama's brother, who Ajahn had also met in California. He died a few years previously, which I guess was why the place was now so quiet. When Ajahn explained he'd paid his respects in California, there was another deep Tibetan hmm of approval and we were escorted to a large shrine adorned with pictures of their venerated teacher and given booklets about him and his teachings. Then we were taken to the far side of the hill, from where the monk pointed to another hill in the distance topped with another scarlet and yellow Tibetan monastery. This was Tokni Rinpoche's monastery. The hill looked the same. The name sounded the same. No wonder our mistake. Tibetans being mountain people chose to site many of their new monasteries on the previously unused hilltops in the Kathmandu Valley. When we finally arrived at the right monastery, a young monk explained that everyone had gone down on this their rest day, the Bodna. We should come back tomorrow when there would be someone senior to receive us. But then, as we turned to leave, there was a sudden cry. Ajahn Amaral! What are you doing here? And a short, scrawny monk, without his outer robe, came bounding across a lawn with a broad smile on his face. His English was excellent, and spoken with an American drawl. Wow! I was upstairs. We're only just back. I've been with Rinpoche's mother in the mountains. Then I had this sudden sense I was needed down here. Not like I heard anything but like I just felt I had to come down. Then there you were. That's really amazing. Ajahn introduced Tashila, secretary and attendant to Tokni Rinpoche. Tashila insisted we all follow him back into the main temple and upstairs to the teacher's private apartment, where we were introduced to the mother a lady in her sixties wearing a traditional Tibetan dark dress with colourful pinafore, who spoke no English. Over tea there were explanations. Our pilgrimage, Chokni Rinpoche's teachings in Germany, their trip to the family home near Mount Everest. Then Ajahn Amro asked the mother, 
through Tashila, about her sons. There are four brothers, Ajahn explained to us, and all are recognised as reincarnate lamas, or tulkus, and thus referred to with the honorific title, Rinpoche. Their father was a much-revered Dogchen master who established this monastery. But the only son the mother wanted to talk about was her youngest. She missed him and was worried about him, she told us. Tashila explained that Mingo Rinpoche was the one the family now looked to to continue the father's work. He's the real thing. Even as a young boy he was into meditation. Going off alone into sitting caves. He completed the traditional three-year retreat as a teenager. And he's always just wanted to be a monk. The family had decided he should take over responsibility for the monastery from his brother, Ajahn's friend. But then Mingor had disappeared, escaping through his bedroom window in the middle of the night, taking only the clothes he wore. He'd left a letter to his disciples, which can be found online, explaining he wanted to practice as a poor wandering hermit, but one day he would come back. That was two years previously, and the family hadn't heard of him until just the other month, when the mother had received a letter reassuring her he was well. A Korean Buddhist nun had recognised him living as a hermit in China on the borders of Tibet. He'd given her the letter, swearing her to tell no one who he was and to not post it for two weeks to give him time to disappear again. Yeah! We met the nun, but there was no trace of him by then, Tashila explained. She told us how good he was at lighting campfires and stuff like that. That really knocked everyone out. But the mother didn't look impressed, just worried. Maybe they were reincarnate llamas, but to her, they were just her boys. Later, as Tashila showed us around the rest of the monastery, I could see why Minga might have wanted to flee. We were shown into an enormous building under construction, Tashila telling us, This is the new teaching hall, where Minga Rinpoche will instruct the monks and visitors one day. Fleeing family life and its responsibilities to undertake the spiritual journey is an ancient tradition. The Buddha fled just like that in the middle of the night with nothing. But it seemed ironic that the family business being fled in this case was spiritual teaching. Tashila also took us to meet the grandfather, up yet more stairs to a single room that sat atop everything else. Tibetan temples being constructed usually like tiered wedding cakes. The room was lined with Tibetan religious artefacts hanging tanker paintings, piled chanting scripts, a brass bell, and a shrine which was side to side with the television. On a raised bed on the opposite wall, and facing both TV and shrine, sat an old man dressed in maroon, hung with marla beads, his scanty long grey hair tied behind his head. Tashilar explained that the grandfather, the father of the mother, I think, was in his nineties and a great spiritual adept. 
when Teshilar told him in Tibetan who we were and about our pilgrimage to Mount Kailash, his reply in Tibetan was assertive. <laughs> he asks why you're taking so long. He says it only takes three days at most to walk round Mount Kailash. Ajanamara explained how we would also walk to the mountain on the traditional route over the Himalayas, and when the grandfather asked why, added, So we can use the adversities we encounter, physical difficulties, any problems with our companions, whatever, for our spiritual practice. Hardship like this is good for practice. When Teshi La translated this, there was an approving hmm, followed by a few words in a milder tone. He says, yes, that's the right way. He was just checking you were doing it for the right reasons. Then Ajahn asked, is there any advice he can give us for the pilgrimage? The translated question received a very emphatic response in Tibetan. He says, take a stick. A good stick. We both have walking sticks, replied Ajahn. But this wasn't enough for the old man, who grunted another emphatic statement. <laughs> he says it has to be a really good stick. At the Vihara, we ate our meals, both breakfast and lunch, in a room above the main dining area, served by three young nuns in pink, Sister Suba, Kima and Sudama. When Ajahn Amro was invited to dine there, at a table with Venerable Nyana Pernika, I assumed I was to eat with the other monks and novices downstairs. But a pink nun came to fetch me. They'd set Sister Chinny's table for me. Once the two senior monks had taken what they wanted, the food dishes were borne to my table. The nuns called me Venerable Dr Nick and told me that Sister Chinny, who was away visiting, had instructed them to take good care of me. Next day, when Venerable Nana Purnika had gone to Thailand, Negroda was promoted upstairs in his stead. He enjoyed his new importance, telling the nuns what to do, although there was no need. But he could also be very helpful. Ajanamaro had only to mention something, and Negroda would have his smartphone out organising it. In the Vihara, I'd usually find him busy in the office, maybe looking something up on the computer, or deep in discussion with a visiting layman. Within a day of our arrival, he'd booked both of us to give talks for their new degree course, the first year of a new Buddhist university they were running at the monastery. The Vihara also housed a school for young novices, the All Nepal Bhikkhu Association, and was responsible for the nearby International Buddhist Meditation Centre. Negroda 
seemed to be running most of it. The Vihara proved a great base for us, but I struggled with the nights. At first I put it down to jet lag, but as it carried on, all I could do was accept that most of the night I was awake, some of it wide awake, sitting or walking in meditation on the flat roof. It could be very pleasant walking back and forth in the moonlight, the city at rest, with just the occasional lorry or car passing on the main road below. But by dawn I was drained, only then managing an hour's sleep, usually just as the morning puja in the temple started, a discordant high-pitched babble of young voices chanting. Thankfully, there seemed to be no expectation I should be there. After four days, the first of our companion pilgrims arrived, Venerable Damaraco, who I still thought of as Colin, who I'd known since the early days of Ajahn Sumedho's teaching. A few years previously, when his daughter was happily married, he'd finally fulfilled his wish to go forth. He'd become a long da, or venerable uncle, the name the ties have for men who become monks at the end of their lives. It's a term of endearment, but one also indicating they should be given some latitude. Colin's quirk was Tudong. He was inspired to go wandering, living as an arms mendicant whenever he could, setting off on great rambles across Britain with robes and bowls slung over one shoulder. So he jumped at the chance to join the pilgrimage when invited by Ajahn Amro to be his monastic companion. This was instead of Venerable Apamado, the young Portuguese monk I'd invited at the end of Alex's walk in Ireland. The Chinese, you see, had changed the rules again on who was allowed into Tibet. Our party, with a minimum of six, now all had to have passports from the same country. It was part of China's continuing attempt to exclude individual travellers, those more likely to be sympathetic to the plight of the Tibetans. So Podrick, with an Irish passport, had also had to drop out. The next day Damarako came with us to the Swayambhunath stupa, the more famous and ancient of the two large Buddhist stupas in Kathmandu. Unlike Bodhna, it is set atop a hill. There, Jarana would meet us, buy us a meal, and she'd also offer to pay for a taxi. But instead, Nigroda had arranged for a supporter with a four-wheel drive to take us. That, he assured me, would be much more comfortable. It also meant Nigroda was now coming too. At breakfast, I could see Ajahn was not impressed with this. This is an invitation from Jarana to us. Yes, yes, Negroda replied. She is happy for me to come also. Well, please ensure we get there with plenty of time. We'd like to climb up to the stupa. But there are a lot of steps. <laughs> it's a long way up. <laughs> the driver will take us to the top. I suspected that Negroda who was rather plump, never undertook such exercise. 
We want to climb the steps. We need to get fit for our walk, Ajahn replied very firmly. You could go down afterwards. But Ajahn was insistent. Then, when the four-wheel drive arrived and proved to be no larger than a taxi, he was again insistent. There wasn't enough room to take three monks, as well as Claire and myself. And no, he wouldn't squeeze into the front with the driver and Nigroda. Nigroda would have to stay behind. Undaunted, Nigroda telephoned another layman who promptly arrived with his car. The resulting convoy did then deliver us to the bottom of the hill, from where, starting between two large Buddha sentinels, the flights of steps ascended steeply, dotted with tourists and Nepalese pilgrims, climbing to the distant top. It was a warm, sunny day, and what with the altitude of the Kathmandu Valley, it was not just Nigroda who was puffing and red in the face as we climbed. While monkeys peered down from the trees on our labours, their tails dangling behind them. At the top, Jarana was waiting for us amidst the crowded terrace at the stupa's base. The giant stupa, with its knowing eyes gazing out on the well below, was surrounded by temples, large and small, shuffling pilgrims circumambulating it, smaller monuments and gulping tourists. We joined the throng, passing large copper prayer wheels, smaller stone stupas, Buddhas and tourists, all under a multitude of prayer flags flapping from lines tied above our heads. Nigroda then took us to see the Theravadan Vihara on the far side of the hill, where he arranged for fruit juice to be served. Arjun was reluctant, but was assured there was time enough before their meal. On the way back, I realised I'd left my hat behind, so I arrived late at the restaurant to find that Jarana, wanting to ensure her teacher got only the best, had ordered an elaborate Nepalese meal. In my sleepless state, I didn't notice the time. I just gazed out of the window at circling kites as Jarana spoke with Ajahn Amaro. So nothing could be done when Ajahn pointed out that the meal would arrive too late. Sure enough, despite entreaties to the kitchen from Jarana, the first dishes were put on the table only five minutes before midday. Nigroda quickly assured Jarana that there was now no problem. As long as they started eating before midday, that was within their rules. But the look of resignation on Damarako's face told another story. Ajahn Amro comes from a much stricter tradition than that. After a few mouthfuls of rice, while watching his clock, Ajahn Amro stopped as its hands arrived at midday. Damarako followed him in putting his utensils down, and only then did Nigroda realise, with a look of utter dismay, that he too had no choice but to follow the lead of the senior monk. 
arrayed before them was a dozen delicious Nepalese curries. Of course, Jarana was upset, but Ajahn gave her a teaching on the suffering that arises when we don't get what we want, be it a meal or the joy of giving a meal. He also asked Claire and me to eat what we could to honour Jarana's gift, while they sat next door. They departed, with Nigroda trailing reluctantly behind, still looking back at the curries. Afterwards, to save Nigroda phoning again for an extra car, Claire and I walked across Kathmandu. Heading east, we wandered from new suburbs to old, then into the narrow streets of the traditional commercial district, eventually to emerge into Dobar Square. This had been from where the magic emanated, or so it seemed to me, when I was first in Kathmandu, as a twenty-year-old. Then I was amazed by the random collection of ancient wooden buildings with tiered pagoda roofs, carved lattice windows and leaning walls, ornate statues on very tall pedestals and gods to be peered at through little doors. The locals went about their business, oblivious, while I wandered around, in awe. Dober Square is now a World Heritage Site, full of tourists with guidebooks explaining how this building was a royal palace, or that temple was to such and such a god, with a rope across the road and a Nepali official in a booth charging for entrance. So instead, we joined the local youth sitting outside the barrier on the tiered flight of steps leading up to a lesser temple. From there, we watched the tourists pass back and forth below us, with locals still going about their business, oblivious. From our vantage point, I could also point out where the pie shop used to be, where we, then around the same age as Claire, would spend our time playing chess smoking very strong hashish bought from the official government booths and eating slices of sweet lemon meringue pie. It had been a thoroughly enjoyable day, at least for us. The next of our pilgrim companions to arrive was Rory Hodd. He had a UK passport, you see, as he was born in England, his parents later moving to South West Ireland because of his father's love of nature. Rory, the youngest of four sons, was the one to inherit that love. Being rather shy, he found botany particularly appealing. As a young boy, he walked Kalani's mountains with his father, in search of rare plants, so that by the time he arrived as a student in Mishi's class at Galway University, he was already a good field botanist. Mish likes to tell a story of a residential field trip when the other students, amazed, spent an evening trying and failing to find a plant that Rory could not quietly identify. He was joining us from Sikkim 
where he'd been walking in mountains famous for their flora. The other layman, Chris Smith, arrived later the same day. I'd been walking with him in the Tatra Mountains, so when I found him sitting in the cloisters on the day I visited Amaravati to invite Ajahn Amaro, I'd asked him if he'd also like to join us. It was Gobi, a supporter at Amravati, who then found the money to pay for the monk's airfares. When I mentioned how the layman I'd now invited would struggle just to find the money for themselves. Nick, it's no problem. Everyone will want to help when they hear Ajahn Amro is at last doing something for himself. And Venerable Apamada is such a selfless young monk. Everyone likes him. I never quite gave up hope with Apamada, even though he was later replaced by Damaraka. It was those dreams he'd been having about going on pilgrimage to Mount Kailash. Despite Ajahn Amro and Stephen being so adamant in Morocco on the need to dismiss such notions, I still had this strong sense that it was meant to be. Then, when I returned from Morocco, the Chinese had changed the rules yet again, and suddenly now he could go. So I sent an email to everyone I knew, asking if they'd like to help a young Portuguese Buddhist monk go on pilgrimage to Mount Kailash. I got over 50 offers, which amounted to just enough to pay for his airfare. So we booked him to arrive with Chris. And it was good he did come, as the last layman I'd invited was told by doctors only a week before that he couldn't fly after a blackout. We wouldn't have had six, and the Chinese wouldn't have let us into Tibet. But having three Buddhist monks on a Buddhist pilgrimage, although auspicious, had its practical considerations. Most of their costs, including the local flights to Simicot and all their needs in Tibet, were to be borne by us three laymen. My only income was the rent from my cottage in Northumberland. Rory just worked summers recording mountain plants, and Chris was making his living as a storyteller working with schools. Usually trips with monks, particularly those with famous Buddhist teachers such as Ajahn Amro, are stocked with wealthy benefactors and undertaken in luxury. This one would be at the other end of the spectrum. Such that there is neither name nor gender, just mere curiosity, just mere awareness. Then you walk on and you come to where Indian groups unfortunately arrive in coaches. This will be like a market situation, lots of yaks and horses and people screaming around, trucks bringing their tents and luggage. 
Do not engage into this. Stay in your Kora. This miserable thing is nothing to do with Kailash. Next you come to the second arm, the wish-fulfilling site. Here you must... Roger Pfistner must have given this talk to groups about to undertake the pilgrimage well over a hundred times. He was half Swiss German, half Italian. The German manifested in the firmness of his instructions. Here you must make your wish, which should be prepared beforehand. And the detailed explanations. He manifested as a white yak and entered this cave. Thus it is incredibly powerful sight. And the clarity about exactly how much good it would do us all. This is extremely sacred ground, with a constant merit of one million times, and you will be there still in Sakadawa, so you will have one million times and one hundred thousand times the merit. It was Ajahn Sichito who suggested I arranged our trip through Roger. The Chinese only allow groups organised by official agents, and Roger had been the agent for his pilgrimage a few years before. I immediately liked Roger's attitude. This was his Buddhist service, he wrote. Having gained so much from the mountain himself, he wanted to share it with others. But actually, we had no choice. It was the prices the other agents quoted which decided that. We couldn't afford to travel in the way Andrew had when taking Ajahn Samedo, with half a dozen Sherpas plus porters carrying supplies of Western food brought from Kathmandu. Roger dismissed this as travelling like tourists and said instead he'd find us only a guide and we'd eat the local food. But Roger had also been dismissive of our wish to walk in on the traditional route from Nepal across the Himalayas. This was an unnecessary complication. For him, only the Kora, the pilgrimage round the sacred mountain, was important. He even offered to accompany us at no extra charge if we were to do the Kora alone, driving there direct but as Ajahn Amro was to comment after this first meeting, Roger's suggestions are very helpful, but I prefer to then do my own pilgrimage, not Roger's. Roger was a strong character. Roger's advice, though, was very good. For the Cora itself, with which he was so familiar, there were small details like you must buy yourself a water bottle holder with a shoulder strap so you can drink easily. At such altitude, everything is effort. And he agreed about the need for a walking stick. This is essential so you can lean on it to rest. Sitting down takes too much effort. But Roger's reply when Ajahn Amro asked how he himself first came to do the Kailash pilgrimage, was the most interesting thing he said. It was through a visionary dream. 
I was working here in Nepal as a volunteer. It was 96, and a girl who worked with me spoke about the mountain. I said it has beautiful symmetry, but it is not for me. I am not a mountain person. Then two weeks later, I had this dream, and there was the skyline with the mountain and a big red sign pointing like this. He indicated down with his finger. An arrow? asked Chris. Yeah, yeah, a big red arrow pointing at the mountain. And I knew I had to go there. But it took me three attempts. I made every mistake you can make. But eventually I got there. And when I did, I got sick like a dog. On that first collar, I had hardly any perception. I just pushed myself. And then I did the cora of Lake Manasarova. But there everything fell away. I was transformed. And I knew I had to stay right there by the lake. So I told the others to go on without me. I had my last noodle soup, so there was no food to crave. And I was just being there, all day just being and watching. It was so joyful. That's why you did it again? I asked. Yeah, and because exactly the same thing happened four months later when I did a Theravada meditation retreat in Thailand. That was 26 days with a 10-day retreat, a 72-hour determination and then another 10-day retreat. Yes, I know that, commented Ajahnamra. Well, at the end of that, I realized my passion has to go. I was doing walking meditation, and I thought this is like soup without the salt, if you know what I mean. Ajahn said he did. I realized that if a man transforms into equanimity, then passion has to be let go of. Next day, an American man said I looked like death. That's because I really realized passion has to die. When I told the monk teacher, he said, Oh, very good, very good. But it didn't feel good to me. I felt terrible. But then, exactly the same as on the Kora. Exactly the same. I was transformed again. But the first time it seemed to have been more joyful, yes? More spontaneous. Ajahn asked. Yeah, yeah, at the lake I was filled with joy and so creative. But on the retreat it was grim, really grim. But then the same thing has happened on the lake. The same thing. The lake was a special place though. All day there was an owl on the cliff above me. When I went back there were two owls in the same place so I knew this really was a special place. I've never had this kind of mindset in this life, because I let go then of everything. In that moment, nothing was left. So then every year I do the same Kora, and I also do the same retreat, because this worked for me. I am the type of man who, when he finds a good restaurant, I just keep going to the same restaurant. I just observed the slight variations. 
Roger was as passionate as he was intense. Perhaps that was the Italian in him. So then I start to give advice to others who want to go. Now this is what I do as my service. I have done the Cora 102 times. The six of us had three days together in Kathmandu before our departure to make plans and shop for equipment and supplies. Roger came again, this time with our guide Indra, who'd accompany us to the Tibet border. And Sangi Lama came too. During one of these meetings, I mentioned my wish to not feel responsible for our actual pilgrimage, so that I could undertake it like everyone else. It was Chris, bless him, who understood what I meant. I really appreciate how much you've done to get us here, Nick, so I'd like to take something off you as a thank you. What about the money and expenses? I could be the bookkeeper and carry the cash you've been given for Ajahn Amro. It's not something I'm naturally good at, numbers and planning budgets, but I'd be happy to try. So Chris bought himself a little exercise book, quizzed Roger on the possible costs, noted down how much cash each of us laymen had, and then spent a lot of time staring at pages of calculations and sucking on a pencil. His final conclusion? We'd have just enough if we were careful, and nothing at all to spare. Rory was to be the photographer for our pilgrimage. It was something I thought he'd enjoy, as he has some wonderful camera equipment. But when we went to Patan, it became apparent that he too would be taking on something he was not naturally good at. It was wide mountain landscapes, and small flowering plants, which Rory loved to photograph. When you are shy, taking photographs of people can be daunting. We were off to Patan because Sister Chinny was back, a smile on her craggy face, her short stocky body bustling about, and her eyes ablaze with determination. How else do you manage single-handedly to carve out a new niche for nuns in society but be forceful? Sister Chinny was like a small armoured vehicle going into battle for the Dharma. I could see the admiration in Claire's eyes, impressed as generations of women inclined to the spiritual life have been. It was Sister Chinny who inspired Canadian Aya Medanandi, 30 years now a nun, to go off to Burma to ordain, while the three young nuns who have been caring for us are just the most recent generation of Nepalese women she has trained. Sister Chinny's family are in Patan's Buddha Rupa business, a livelihood that dates back to the original Mahayana monks and nuns of the Kathmandu Valley producing and selling those fabulous Nepali Buddha and Bodhisattva images cast in bronze with details picked out in copper. She wanted us to meet them. Everyone was to come, driven in a fleet of family cars. Each of Sister Chinny's brothers had a modern house in a compound, 
on our arrival, the extended family gathered through backyards to the host's house, where the monks were arranged on the living room sofas, the family filling the floor, with the more junior standing outside peering in. We three laymen and Claire joined the nuns at a table in another room, with Sister Chinny at its head. From there she loudly instructed her sister-in-laws, nieces and nephews, on the offering of the many dishes. The monastics chanted a blessing, and then we all tucked in, served and fussed over by the family. After the clearing, we all reassembled for a talk by Ajahn Amro. Throughout all this, I had to quietly urge Rory to take photos, whispering encouragement. It's okay, they don't mind. They want their photos taken. Rory's a large man, particularly in Nepal, and he had a very large, sophisticated camera. No matter how much he tried to crouch and bend over it, he was still very noticeable. Ajahn Amro's talk was about how to lead a happy lay life. It was not the topic which made it such a success, but his ability to explain their traditional teachings using modern concepts which resonated, particularly with the younger generation. After he'd finished, everyone was beaming, and each of the other brothers wanted him to return for a meal at their house. I'd hoped we could afterwards go on into the old town of Patan, and maybe visit one of the traditional wooden monasteries set about a cobbled courtyard where the Nawari Buddhist monks used to live, or the workshops where the Buddhas were made. Each suggestion had received a, yes, 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 we'll see, from Sister Chinny. But afterwards, she had us driven to her little nun's vihara and the new part of town. It was a small modern house, with a garden of pretty flower beds. Claire commented she could see immediately that this was where women lived. We were taken into the shrine room where Sister Chinny offered us glasses of fruit juice, explaining, Now I am too old to live here any more. Too old to train young nuns. Too much work. They have to do it now. She indicated the three nuns as she took off her glasses to rub her eyes. She looked tired. Now I just want to live at the big vihara. Then she started to pull things out from about the shrine. There was something for Ajahn Amro, something each for the other monks, a beautiful brass jug for me. I don't need this anymore. I want you to have them. And finally, there was the Buddha. It was exquisite, an antique given by her family to honour her fifty years as a nun, she explained. This she gave to Claire. You have good meditation. You will use it. All the time we were in Kathmandu, Claire had had a look of wonder on her face. How was all this happening to her? Now her eyes opened wide as that wonder transformed into startled shock at this amazing gift. Next day, with lots of goodbyes and good wishes for our pilgrimage, 
we set off for the airport to take the first of two flights, the only easy way to reach Simicon, the trailhead where the walking would start. We had packs on our backs, boots on our feet and walking sticks in hand. Everyone else had modern light walking poles, which clicked as they hit the ground as we walked out of the Vihara to the waiting cars. But Arjun Amro and I carried wooden staffs, which thumped rather than clicked. His was made for him when he was a junior monk in Thailand, from a twisted vine, with the knob forming the handle made from the vine's base. He hasn't used it since he left Thailand, but decided to take it on the pilgrimage when he heard I was taking one. Mine had been made by a Connemara man I'd only just met. Brian was on a visit to our house to view some unusual numbered stones that Mish had discovered on our local shore, and we got talking about journeys. I mentioned in passing that I was soon off on a walking pilgrimage to Tibet. I'll make you a walking stick, so. I politely replied how that would be nice, not thinking for an instant it might happen. Two months later, he appeared at our door unannounced, having driven from his home to deliver a tall walking staff, which came to just short of my chin. The wider top carved as a head with flowing locks and beard, and its base shod with a piece of metal tube. I knew I had no choice but to take it, whether I wanted to or not. And I am extremely grateful I did. For that old Tibetan monk had been right. To go round Mount Kailash, you need a stick, a really good stick. I reckon that walking staff saved my life.